This is the Uncommon Sense podcast for 3 R FM with Amy Mullins. First up on the show, Ben Eltham from New Matilda joined me to talk about federal politics. Then, Tim Singleton-Norton, Chair of Digital Rights Watch Australia, joined me in the studio to talk about the Assistance and Access Act 2018, also known as the encryption legislation that was passed through Parliament late in 2018. Then, Professor Marilyn Waring joined me on the show to talk about her new book, Still Counting, Wellbeing, Women's Work and Policymaking. Marilyn joined me to talk about her latest book as well as how it relates to her most seminal work that was published over 30 years ago. It focuses on the limits to GDP as an economic measure. But uh, I have with me now Ben Altham, who is the National Affairs Correspondent for New Matilda. Hi there, Ben. Good morning, Amy. How are you? Good morning. I'm good. How are you? I'm okay. Yeah, yeah. We're coffeeed and uh, fairly awake. Yeah. Thank you, Milkwood. Yeah, they are so good. Yeah. They keep us going. They really do. Um, I think we have like a tab there. (laughs) If only. Um, so, so there's lots going on. Um, let's there talk. is a bit going on. Yeah, yes, yeah, yes. But just a tad. Um, one of the things that was quite surprising and then not so is uh, the fact that I think it was last Thursday, wasn't it, that we had a very, very, very long question time. Oh, yeah, was that? Oh, that seems like years ago I now. know. Uh, yeah, so going back to last week, that's right. The government decided to filibuster their own question time, um, essentially extending it until the end of the Thursday sitting of the House of Representatives in order to not vote on a Royal Commission into abuse in the disability sector. This is a motion that had been put up by the Greens Senator uh, Jordan... Steel John. Uh, Steel John. I was, I was to say Steel Young, but it's Steel John. Jordan Steel John. Um who replaced Scott Ludlam as the West Australian Greens Senator. He's a passionate advocate for disability um, and for reform in that area. And um, it, it was one of those things where, yet again, the government's lost control of the parliament. Mm. So um, basically they didn't want to vote for it. We don't really know why because they say they're in favour of it. Um, but instead of voting for it, uh, they just decided to extend question time for a whole another couple of hours, which just looks silly, really, yeah. in the end. And there are a lot of bored-looking MPs sitting there um, because clearly people had moved on. They'd already kind of done their questions and were just waiting for Parliament for the week to end. Yeah, considering how little parliamentary time we've got running into the federal election, you know, it's not the greatest use of our parliamentarians' time. Um, and also, I think, yeah, it illustrates it once again that the, this government's really struggling to keep things together. And it's a pretty um, big slight for people like uh, Senator Steel John because he um, came into the the house on that day and was pretty angry at um, the kind of politicking that was going on in Parliament in the lower house, and fair enough because I mean he's been advocating on this issue for such a long time. Yeah, well, let's talk about the issue just briefly. So yeah. he wants a, a royal commission into abuse, particularly physical and sexual abuse in the disability care sector, and the information that we've got, including from a previous Senate inquiry, is that the abuse 
abuse is rife. There's a lot mm. of it, and it's horrible, severe. Yeah. yeah. So um, this is, um, and he says it's a life or death issue, and he's really it's correct true. there. So yeah. the people are are literally losing their lives in the care of these um, of these institutions. So you could hardly get a more serious issue than that. And for the government to play politics on it, I think, is unfortunately all of a piece with the the government's general approach to the parliament over the last few months. But but it is particularly disappointing, I think, on such a serious issue. It's very disappointing. We saw over the weekend people speculating and saying, well, surely um, the coalition's just delaying and, of course, they'll support the motion to establish a royal commission. But um, we did see that they did do that in the end, that there has been this support and yet there, haven't, there hasn't been the follow-through that we've seen with other um, issues like the aged care sector, like the Banking Royal Commission. Um, the Scott Morrison, the Prime Minister, has said, oh, well, we need to get the state's permission and we need to talk to them first because there are a lot of state actors and um, stakeholders involved in a Royal Commission such as this. And Senator Steele-John has said that that's absolutely crap. Um, it's not. That's not been an issue in the past for other royal commissions. Why are you creating issues now to set up this royal commission? And it seems to be the fact that, as we've just said, given we have so few sitting days, that perhaps this government is delaying, um, you know, moving forward with it and leaving it till uh, election time. Absolutely. Uh, they just want to kick it down the road. Um, the government wants to spend time beating up on labour, on immigration policy. Um, what it doesn't want to do is the business of the parliament, even if it's in important issues, that it says that it's in favour of. So uh, it's not a very good look for the government, to say the least. Um, but unfortunately, um, that's where we're at in Parliament in 2019. Yeah. And um, we've also seen another delaying of a, a key government policy, which is the so-called big stick legislation or <laughs> bill. Which Oh, the big stick. What? Uh, it's a horrible name, really. Um, but why is that also getting held up? Because um, the coalition seems to be blaming Labor for this, and yet it's definitely not Labor who is preventing it from being um, followed through on in the Senate. Yes, so uh, just to recap, the big stick, so-called, is the government's latest attempt at having an energy policy, and it wants to use the powers of the Commonwealth to basically set prices for electricity companies, for retailers, to try and bring electricity prices down. The background, of course, is that electricity prices have been going up, and that's generally basically because it's the coalition's energy Chaos that's yeah. that's caused um, so many yeah yeah the the uncertainty of policy and the fact that the government's consistently opposed renewable energy, which is the cheapest form of new build electricity, has driven prices up. So the government's only got themselves to blame, um, and they've tried to respond by you know threatening the the retailers, but they haven't even got their policy up to the parliament yet. I don't believe the bill's been introduced, has it? I think it was introduced but it's not done more than that like it was placed on the notice paper right. and introduced and hasn't been progressed right yes so i mean i think this it's again shows the, the the government's in a bit of disorganization to say the least chaos might be even well, a planned disorganization really it's not even just because they're disorganized well yeah absolutely i mean they could be ramming this through if they really wanted to be if but it was a priority yeah which they have been saying on and on and on since tony abbott was in government it's all about electricity prices and your bills and your pocket 
I mean, I mean, it's a very bad idea and it's a bad policy. So perhaps wiser heads have prevailed. Having the unlikely, the ben, thre- surely. <laughs> Who can even not say? Not too much credit. It's really hard to take this government seriously on policy at the moment, or on anything, because uh, you know they're, they're basically in election mode. And um, as we saw with the the Phelps bill on on uh, the Minas Island medevac evacuations last week, they've basically lost control of the House of Representatives. So. Um, and I also get the sense that Christopher Pine, the leader of the House, is kind of on a kind of strike, maybe, or like he doesn't yeah. seem to be particularly interested in in um, running things, which is his job. So um, it's really Christopher Pine's job to to progress legislation through the House to to make sure that things are running on time mm-hmm. and the and legis- Matthias Corman in the Senate. Yeah, Matthias Corman, of course, has run into some problems this morning when it's been revealed that he uh, had a flight to Singapore paid for by a Liberal donor. Um, so there's a bit of an integrity scandal now looming over Corman's head. Um, and, of course, all of the shenanigans in the immigration and the home affairs portfolio continue. Um, we've seen some really diligent reporting by the Australian Financial Review over the last week looking into uh, a company called Paladin. Paladin is uh, a, a very shady kind of disreputable shell company that's been, that has a, a, a pretty bad corporate record lots of bad debts um one of its directors is up on 106 charges of fraud and money laundering these are the guys it's a that high number it is quite a lot of charges for fraud <laughs> and i believe isn't he the co-managing director of one of those companies that- uh he he is he's a he's a one of the senior executives in one of the entities it's it's one of those sort of classic kind of shell companies where there's yeah. a cloud of entities that are all interrelated and have cross share ownerships uh for no apparent reason except for maybe transparency reasons um anyway why is this important it's important because these are the guys that the government the department of home affairs has contracted to the tune of about half a billion dollars mm. to provide security at manas and Nauru concentration camps. Oh, did I say that? Sorry. Whoops. Immigration detention centres. Um, and so um, the, some journalists at the Australian Financial Review have been looking into this company. Some of the things that they found are less than kosher, you might say. So, for example, their listed company office turned out to be a beach shack on Kangaroo Island in South Australia. I wouldn't even call it a shack. I thought that yeah. was pretty generous. Yes. Uh, <laughs> a, a, bit of a, a bit of a hovel. Uh, yeah. Didn't look very habitable. Uh, there's this fellow who's a director of one of the entities who's up on charges of money laundering and fraud. Uh, there appear to be close connections between the PNG government and some of the Paladin contractors in PNG. Um, uh, we also found out that the way that this money was paid to these guys was basically um, a secret tender. So the mm. government announced a tender, but it didn't tell anyone about it. And there was only one bidder, which was Paladin. And it all went through in about six days. So um, that's not what I'd call the sort of best case Commonwealth procurement process. Yes, which according to the Secretary is usually 12 months in duration. Well, I mean, you know, we're not talking about small fry here either. We're talking about a $430 million contract. And I think what this shows in the bigger picture is just how politicised and arguably corrupt the Department of Home Affairs is getting. So there's been all sorts of scandals, obviously, in home affairs. But it's got to the point now where 
the senior public servants at Home Affairs appear to be now covering up for their ministers and, and even, you have to say, misleading Senate in the estimates. Um, so, for example, yesterday they tried to claim that this guy who's up on charges for fraud was not a director of any entity that the Commonwealth had a contract with. Now, that, that fell over within minutes as it was really obvious that, yes, in fact, he is a director of a, one of the Paladin entities. So um, I think, you know, um, there's a lot to run on that Paladin scandal. Mm. And um, Peter Dutton, by the way, the responsible minister, has essentially said that he knows nothing and that the whole thing's the, the responsibility of the department. And that's put a lot of scrutiny on the very powerful secretary of the Home Affairs Department, a fellow called Mike Pizzullo. And if you know a little bit about Canberra politics, he's one of the most powerful uh, non-elected public servants really in the country. Uh, the Home Affairs portfolio is this sprawling empire that he's built up over the course of many years. He's an extraordinarily effective, tough but also mm. highly politicised operator. And um, I think questions have got to be asked really about his role. Yeah, and there's a lot of um, involvement in the Ministry of Home Affairs, particularly around uh, not only um, this issue, but also other issues. You say that there's been a lot of controversies in recent times. This isn't the only issue that Senate Estimates is looking into uh, with the Department of Home Affairs, isn't it? Oh, no, absolutely not. There's a string of, of scandals really going back years, um, a lot to do with the fact that they've wasted untold billions of dollars on these offshore detention centres. Just reopened Christmas Island. Christmas Island. That is, was one of their recommendations. Christmas Island has just been reopened. And actually last night we found that the people who are being medivaced out of Manus and Nauru because they're very, very sick are actually just going to be flown to Christmas Island. So um, I, I would argue that that's not the best health care for those people. No. And how are you going to transport such a number of specialists that must be required to Christmas Island? That's going to cost even more money. Well, I think this, again, gets into the absurdity of Australia's immigration policies where, as uh, as a nation really, but also particularly the political elites, and I include the media in that as well, we've come to accept that uh, we need a complicated system of torture, essentially, where we are torturing innocent people um, in order to maintain this kind of fictional integrity of our borders. And that's really where the debate's got to over the last few years, where mm. it's this idea that uh, Australia can only have strong borders if we imprison people in these offshore detention centres. Um, and so the logic of that consistently means punishing people um, and and so that's part of what they're trying to do here. So uh, under the guise of, you know, making sure that we don't start the boats again and that the people smugglers don't get back into business and all that other rubbish that's talked, mm. um, we're going to now transport these very sick asylum seekers, many of whom have been in jail for years, uh, many of whom haven't received proper medical treatment for years. We're going to send them not to... A proper hospital in a capital city we're going to send them to christmas island so yeah, I, yeah. I, it is very depressing it is well, i thought we'd made some kind of slight step forward but it doesn't really seem that, that um way. we have in the sense that at least this bill is now on the books uh but there's still plenty of problems i think to be sorted out here uh the doctors for example are, are starting to point out that there's no payment in this mm. in this legislation so 
um, there'll be there'll be no actual pay for the doctors who treat these people. Why is that? You know, that's a really good question and one that the government's not really answering. It is a pretty big thing to ask and expect doctors to step away from their normal job to then go and do something for the government that is unpaid. Like, well, nobody should work for free. No one, Amy. That's, yeah, I know. Not simply... writers, <laughs> not artists, <coughs> um, not speakers, and not doctors. No, exactly right. You know, um, um, if you're if you're rendering a service, then you should be appropriately paid for it. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, again, once again, it's it's part of the twisted logic the sort of alice in wonderland cloud cuckoo kind of uh, mirror world that australian immigration policy has become uh there was another development in estimates yesterday where we saw the head of asio give evidence and he was pretty unhappy with the leaking of asio advice and also the misrepresentation of asio advice in the australian and the department of home affairs is apparently um part of that leak yeah once again the department of home affairs getting its hands dirty in politics so um this was uh when at the height of the debate over the medivac bill last week uh we saw a, a leak to the australian with um confidential asio security advice um given or supposedly given well, yeah yeah to the government saying that the medivac bill would be terrible it would uh, destroy australia's border security and all these kind of you know, things, the sky would fall, essentially. Um, in estimates yesterday, the head of ASIO said, well, that was that was a lie, that mm. wasn't true, that was not the advice that ASIO gave. So, um, you know, I think that shows, I think, the level of politicisation of the Home Affairs Department. And, and I think it is, it is really concerning to the degree to which our, our public servants have now become politicised. Um, and this has, been, this has been going on for a while now, mm. um, and um, certainly not just under the coalition government, but it's got much worse under the coalition government. Um, so if you cast your mind back a couple of years ago to the robo-debt scandal, um, you'll remember that the uh, Department of Human Services leaked the private confidential information of a blogger um, who right. was critical of the robo-debt algorithm. Um, so these kind of things are going on more and more where you've got government departments really acting... As, a, as an arm of the political party of the government of the day. And that's a, that's a real worry, I think. That mm. That's, you know, obviously anti-democratic. Um, but it's also, I think, another reason why we need a proper federal anti-corruption body. It is. And uh, you mentioned there, talking about welfare and those issues, there are a lot of issues coming up with a range of programs. One such program is the Job Active program, which involves parents and requirements for them to to engage in certain activities in order to receive payments. And there's some pretty ridiculous things that, um, that parents have been told to do, such as, you know, change your whole career to in order to engage in education so you can do a course that will you know achieve these boxes that we need you to tick yeah. in order to receive money i yeah. mean th- this kind of bureaucratic um you know issues that keep coming up around uh, the things that people have to do just to receive the safety net that we've agreed everyone should be able to access seems to be getting a bit out of hand and it's certainly been scrutinised and criticised not just by um, you know social services groups and lobby lobbyists but also um, it's been looked in, into by the parliament and, and really 
Yeah, this is the so-called Parents Next uh, mm. program, I believe. Another one of these uh, Orwellian acronyms that the government seems so keen on. Um, yeah, once again, it's it's part of the, the long-standing trend in Australian social policy to punish welfare recipients for um, uh, supposedly the terrible thing of, of asking for the entitlements that the government says that they're allowed to access. Um, you know, the, it, it's all about punching down on people who need help and it's about making it as hard as possible for those people um, to try and gain access to these entitlements and and really there's a philosophy behind it as we saw with the robo debt scandal which is that the government really doesn't believe that people should be on these benefits mm. and so if it makes it as hard as possible for people to access that then um that's that's okay with the government because they, they're fine with that really they, they see welfare as as in itself an inherently bad thing. And, and, and I think one area where I have been really disappointed with the Labor Party is they haven't pushed back very much on this stuff. No, you that's know, true. Um, and, you know, this stuff should be an entitlement. It should be the, the fact that if you qualify for it, you should just qualify for it. And by making it harder and harder for people to access this stuff, firstly, you're imposing untold human misery on the community, as we've seen with, with robo-debt and all the other mutual obligation stuff. And secondly, it doesn't work. It doesn't force no. these people to go and get a job. What generally happens is it forces them into poverty or into the informal economy, the black economy. Um, so the outcomes are terrible. Um, and really it's about, you know... Um, I think I think it's about pandering to the prejudices that people have about people who are on welfare. Yeah, there are huge n- numbers of people who assume um, stereotypes about who might be receiving welfare. There's so many different people who do that and who need it, absolutely need it. Well, it's funny, isn't it? Because you know, one person's welfare bludger is another person's self-funded retiree. So, <laughs> you know, um, there's plenty of people in our community that get money from the government all the time. For we, free. And they don't yeah. have requirements, do they, Ben? They don't have to engage and, well, and they have apply the for 20 of, jobs? No, no, they merely have the requirement of owning fully frank shares so uh, you know the way we treat certain demographics within our community compared to the way we we treat others are very very different such a great point i do appreciate that reference to the franking credits issue um also one thing that's pretty surprising and something that needs more looking into is and we've spoken about this um, and I think we probably need to keep an eye on it is the robo-debt issue because there were just so many uh, letters issued that really created a huge amount of stress and pretty much suggested that a whole range of people had a debt that they owed to the government which they didn't purely because of an accounting formula which basically meant that the government averaged out uh, the, the annual salary you reported to the ATO and said, oh, well, you reported um, this amount in this two-week period, um, but actually we have it at this amount based on the uh, end, you know, however many annual amount of income that you earned. Obviously, not everyone earns the same amount of money in every one to two-week period of pay if they're not on a full-time salary. The government... um 
purposely designed a new algorithm at Centrelink to try and grab as many what they thought were welfare debts as possible. And one of the things that this algorithm did was to take your entire taxable income over the course of a year and average it out across 26 fortnights. Now, if you'd happen to have earned nothing for several months because, for example, you weren't in the workforce, uh, that didn't matter. Yeah, uh, or you were studying. The algorithm was not smart enough to pick that stuff up. So it just started... Uh, robotically issuing these debt notices to hundreds of thousands of Australian citizens and um, the the human misery has been absolutely terrible. Uh, we know that there's been several suicides directly attributable to these debt notices. And the other interesting thing that came to light in recent estimates data is that something like 2,000 people have died after the receipt mm. of one of these auto-compliance robo-debt notices. Now, of course, we can't say that all of those people died because they got a letter from the government. That's not what the data shows. But it does show a very worrying trend, which is that the people receiving these notices are extremely vulnerable people. Mm. And, um, and you know, I, I think that's a real concern. You know, like if you're talking about a government policy, which seems to be indirectly leading to the deaths of Australian citizens, I mean, that should be one of the biggest scandals of the entire Australian political system. And yet yep. because of the way that we treat treat welfare recipients and because of the the philosophies that we have about this stuff you know it's probably going to slide under the radar well one would hope not given that um as you said about 2,030 people died after receiving that debt notice of those 429 were aged under 35 which is insane um to give you a comparison, there were 3,139 deaths of people aged between 15 and 35 in 2016. So, I mean, it's pretty unusual to have such a large proportion of young people dying in that time frame. And it's also interesting that the department, which this is the Department of Human Services, said that uh, nearly a third of those cases, 663 people, were classified by them as being vulnerable, which means they had complex needs like a mental illness, drug use, or were victims of domestic violence. Although, you know, we can't have any causation really for for those deaths, it really does seem like there must be some kind of contributing factor of stress involved to have such a a large proportion of young people and vulnerable people um, passing away in that period. Yeah, it's horrifying. And it shows you, I think, where welfare policy has got to in this country, where we are more than comfortable with punishing the most vulnerable people in our community. And by the way, let's just remind ourselves that most of these people have done nothing wrong. Mm. Even if they may have a welfare debt, it may not be their fault. And of course, in many of these cases, there was no debt at all. Once people investigated it, once they got their documentation together, they were found, in fact, to owe the government nothing. Exactly. And obviously, you have to go back and find all those payslips and get your bank statements from years and years ago and that's a whole ordeal in and of itself. So um, there's now a federal court case being run against uh, Centrelink and the DHS about this issue and I expect that that will win and um, at that point we will find in fact that the robo-debt algorithm is unlawful Mm. and um, that could expose the government to hundreds of millions of dollars of compensation. Um, 
You know, uh, one little sideline to this. Um, on Australia Day this year, uh, the woman most responsible for the robo-debt algorithm, the Secretary of the Department of Human Services, Catherine Campbell, was given a gong. She was given an order of Australia. F- um, so, you know... For doing her job? For doing her job, yes. Um, and in this case, her job involved um, creating this, this program that has monstered hundreds of thousands of innocent welfare recipients. Well, there you go, <laughs> how people get rewarded for yeah, their great work. That's in the a nice sector. thought, isn't it? Isn't it? Isn't it? Thank God we have things like Senate estimates to highlight these issues and uh, hopefully journalists report on them. I just wanted to mention one more thing before I go. Yep. Senator Michaelia Cash has been in the courts over oh, the last yes. week or so. Um, this goes back to the tip-off from her office of a raid on the AWU, the union, um, by the so-called Registered Organisations Commission, which is the anti-union watchdog that the government created. Um, it's now been revealed in that court testimony that um, not only did her office tip off the media, we've, we've, um, we've, that's been admitted to now by the, the two senior media advisors in her office, um, but I, I think actually what's been admitted is that the, it was unlawful. So I think there will now be criminal charges laid against at least the media advisors mm. in Cash's office, and I think it now looks as though Cash herself might be in deep, deep legal trouble over that. Well, the AFP said yesterday that it appeared that evidence had been destroyed... Yep, evidence has been destroyed. Cash and also Michael Keenan, the Justice Minister, refused to cooperate with the Australian yep. Federal Police. They wouldn't give a statement Let and they that were sink asked in. twice. I got the Justice Minister refused to cooperate with the Australian Federal Police. Yeah. Uh, wow. Um, so Ministerial responsibility... Yeah. Not really. Well, I mean, this is not the department we're talking about. This is Cash's own office. These are her own staffers paid for out of the parliamentary budget. Um, You know, it's pretty clear, I think, that Cash has lied multiple times to the Senate and the Parliament about this issue. She continues to claim that she didn't know about the tip-off. I don't think anyone can plausibly believe that looking at the testimony. Um, And and I think, um, as we know, that it's actually... Uh, unlawful to disclose this information to the media in the way that it was done. So well, it meant that media were there waiting for the AFP to rock up. At the very <laughs> least, I think what's going to happen is that someone's going to be charged in McCallia Cash's office, and I think Cash herself could well face some serious legal repercussions down the track here. Yeah. Another scandal to keep an eye on. Yes. The last days of the Morrison government are looking increasingly medieval, actually. They are, yes. Um, Obviously, there's lots more to come, but we have far few sitting days left. So we'll be talking mostly about what happens not in Parliament for the rest of the month and two months, really. Yeah, Parliament's now over until the budget. And um, that'll be the next big set piece. The government will try and reset and and perhaps get a little bit of momentum um, and try and run into the federal election, hopefully, with, you know, lots of goodies that they're going to give out in the budget, lots of tax cuts, no doubt. Great, great. So excited. So excited, Ben. (laughs) Can you hear the sarcasm? Well, you know, look. Um, no, I'm not excited. Either. No, no. <laughs> but we keep doing this as a public service, don't we? Yes, I, we do. I watch Senate estimates as a public service, or at least that's what I say. Well, as a mate of mine said the other day, I like listening to you talk about the politics, Ben, so I don't have to think about it. Awesome. Well, I'm glad we are making a difference in a very small way. <laughs> in a small way. <laughs>
I've been speaking with Ben Eltham, uh, who is the National Affairs Correspondent for New Matilda. Thanks, Ben. Thank you, Amy. You are tuned in to Uncommon Sense on 3 Triple R FM with Amy Mullins. We are in the second hour of the show and uh, I'm very excited to be speaking with my next guest. Tim Singleton Norton is the chair of Digital Rights Watch in Australia and um, that group um, with a whole range of other groups, privacy groups, um, technology groups, companies, lobbyists have, well, they gathered together and many of them gave evidence um, to Parliament and uh, on this very special and important uh, access bill, which is now legislation, disturbingly, as of the end of last year. It has uh, a rather long name. I've got to find the whole thing. But really the shortened version, here we go, the Telecommunications and Other Legislation Amendment in brackets Assistance and Access Legislation 2018, which is really just called the Assistance and Access legislation and otherwise known as the encryption legislation that just passed parliament Um, and obviously there was huge amounts of debate around this issue for the second half of last year but it really hit um, the the high point right at the end of the sitting calendar last year when Labor and particularly Penny Wong was prosecuting the case strongly that Labor would not support this legislation. It was very very flawed. It's rare that Labor would ever dissent from um, Um, you know, an issue that affects national security and they have never really done so. But on this particular issue, they were willing to do so and yet they changed their mind. So to talk about all of that and more is Tim Singleton Norton and he joins me now. Hello. Hello. Thanks so much for coming in. It's all right. And uh, obviously this is a pretty complex topic, which is why so many people, you know, may not engage with it in much depth because it just kind of is quite confronting. We see that all the arguments about it from various stakeholders, but we don't necessarily know what the legislation involves. Um, And it certainly did evolve as time went on. Yes, it did. (laughs) Yes. So why don't we go with the beginning of the story, which is that this uh, bill, which is now legislation, came about, um, I believe it was from the Department of Home Affairs? Yeah, we can trace it back to then, although you can also trace it back to um, some comments by our former Prime Minister, Malcolm Turnbull, uh, for which we really can't forgive him because he actually has a technology background. He came up through the startup.com phase of the 1990s, um, has a strong understanding of telecommunications and computing. And there was a famous comment that he made, which is that the, the, um, the laws of mathematics do not trump the laws of Australia. And he made that statement uh, in response to a journalist who was actually asking about how law enforcement would go about giving powers to police to break into encrypted communications. Um, it's a very simple problem that we've got here, which is mm. that more and more terrorists poli- uh, and, and um, criminals and other people who are trying to do bad things in the world, uh, using encrypted communications to protect themselves from being watched. At the same time, you've got everyone in the public also using encrypted communications. And we can't overstate the fact that we use them every day. Mm. It's not just your choice to whether or not you use an encrypted service, such as Signal or Telegram, even iMessage is actually encrypted. Um, We use encryption when we go to an ATM. We use it when we tap our card and pay for a coffee. You use it when you use a Mikey card on a tram. Like encryption is actually embedded in almost all the technology and it's Mm. not just to protect our privacy, it's to protect the transfer of that data. 
So if we go back to um, as far as we can ascertain, the reason that they went into this place is because some of our partners overseas have failed. Um, most people probably would remember uh, a couple of years back the FBI tried to get into a um, an iPhone of a suspected terrorist in California. They couldn't do it. They couldn't break the encryption. So they went to Apple and said, you need to break it for us. And Apple quite rightly and very calmly said, we can't. That's not how encryption works. We don't have his passcode. We don't have his fingerprint. We can't break it. The only way we can break it is if we break it for everybody. Mm. We create a vulnerability. We give it to the FBI. You can use that. Sure. Other people will exploit that. And that's where they said, we're not willing to break our systems for you because it breaks it for everyone. Now, that case stalled. In the end, Apple held their ground and the FBI couldn't access it. They ended up accessing the phone by brute force. They sat there with a computing system for hours and hours and hours and just tried every passcode possible until they finally got in. So that was the test case. That was where we actually started to grapple with the idea that, you know, the metaphor was about we accept the idea that we give the police the right to break down our front door if they have a judicial warrant. If they're shown probable cause, they're allowed to break that door. But imagine if when a police officer kicks a door down, every door down the street automatically opens at the same time. We wouldn't give that power. And that's the analogy that we're trying to push here with encryption. It's not possible to break one without breaking all. Despite that, our own government persevered. <laughs> they pushed forward. Um, the Home Affairs Office uh, put together a draft bill, uh, which, as you, as you said in your intro, um, and my organisation, along with countless other privacy and human rights groups, we started to point out, this is a problem. This is not going to work. And then we saw the tech companies, the people who actually build these systems, say the same thing. We saw the telecommunication network, um, so the Comms Alliance, which is Telstra and Optus and Vodafone, all saying, hang on, this is going to affect our systems as well. You can't do this. And this opposition just grew mammothly. Yeah. Um, and that was on the draft consultation of the bill. And that was around the time of the Lib spill, the leadership spill, wasn't yes. it? Yes. Unfortunately, yeah. at the time we changed to a uh, Prime Minister with an even less understanding of technology. Yes. Um, slightly more interest in border security and, uh, you know, beefing up police force. So that also made it a bit more difficult. Um, so on the one hand, you've got a problem with the legislation and the technical capabilities of how it could be structured and, and the ramifications of what happens when you actually put those powers in place. Then you add on a layer of parliament and politics and that's where everything went out the window Mm. because unfortunately it became a race to the bottom it became both major parties wanting to prove that they were tough on crime that they were tough on terrorists um, and less interested in the nuance of what happens with the technical capabilities of the bill more interested in posturing about whether or not they're going to stop the terrorists Mm. so fast forward through um, draft consultation has happened within the department Draft it was pretty brief, wasn't it, though? It was about three weeks, yeah. which is incredibly brief for a very complex piece of legislation that actually hasn't had the benefit of anyone in Parliament looking at it yet. We're only talking in the department. So a lot of organisations fed back their very, very strong feedback. Mm. Uh, less than a week after it closed, they introduced the draft bill into Parliament. That's clearly not enough time to read the nearly 15,000 submissions that were sent into the Department of Home Affairs. So they didn't listen. 
they put this draft into the parliament uh, and then started to push it through what's known as the PGCIS, which is the Parliamentary Joint Committee on Intelligence and Security. Uh, the word intelligence probably shouldn't be put into this committee because I yeah. didn't see any evidence of it. Um, and as you said, one of the main things with PJCIS is that there is a long-standing tradition that on matters of national security, both major parties will actually align themselves. The committee process is supposed to work these things out. Mm. It's supposed to hear evidence. It's supposed to debate the topic, look at the detail, analyse, and then they will usually produce a report. In some cases with some committees, you will have a dissenting uh, membership, You know, you might have a disagreement by a few people, in which case you'll have a minority report. Majority yes. from the government, minority from the opposition. This is the first time in about 40 years that PJCAS has actually had uh, a minority report. Uh, Labor broke ranks with the government and said, no, no, hang on, we're hearing overwhelming evidence against this, and not just on an ideological level, technically. Mm. It's going to cause damage. It's going to cause issues with the economy of our technology system. It's going to cause vulnerabilities within telecommunications, a whole raft of other things. And that was an interesting move because we saw a glimmer of hope there. We saw Mark Dreyfus, um, the opposition uh, spokesperson on these issues, actually say, hang on, we need to address this, and I'm willing to break the ranks here. Um, this is all happening in the very, very last weeks of Parliament last year, and so it's coming right down to the deadline. For some reason, the government's got it in their head that they need to pass this legislation because the terrorists are very busy at Christmas time. It's a very weird idea yeah. of how terrorists work. I'm not sure how their calendars are arranged. Um, but that was the push that they were going for. Mm. And so they just said, we need to pass it before Christmas. We need to pass it before Christmas. And they suggested that it would be Labor's fault. It would be on them if there was a terrorist attack over the holiday period and they hadn't supported this legislation. Yeah, but it's even weirder, though, because you have to prove that there's a terrorist attack that could have been squashed by breaking into encrypted communications. Mm. Um, now, we're in a bit of a problem here because there was evidence given by ASIO and other secret services into the inquiry, that evidence wasn't made public. So any argument that they wanted to put forward saying agencies say they need it, no one's seen it. Mm. No one's actually seen that argument. So we have to take it on face value and go, there is no proof that you need this. Now, the very, very last day of sitting, uh, and we had Labor sitting there going, well, there's problems and we want to address them. They actually introduced amendments, a whole raft of them, 175 amendments that would address and you know, tweak around the edges of some of this legislation. And then they folded. They pulled the legislation, they backed it, and it passed into law. Mm. And it was a very weird process of Parliament because that's not how it's supposed to work. You don't put forward problems with the legislation and amendments to fix it and then go, actually, I've got a promise that you'll let me do that later, so we'll pass it now. Because I'm scared about the front page of the Daily Telly telling me that Labor supports terrorists. So it was a scare campaign. Mm. And unfortunately, Labor blinked. So it was a really interesting at the last, end of last year and quite disheartening for us because, you know, we had overwhelming evidence from all these different sectors and we were pushing quite hard and we thought we'd actually sort of got that message through that this isn't a battle that we want to have. It's actually about looking at the truth and the evidence. Um, Parliament comes back this year and it's back on the bill. Uh, they've reintroduced amendments and there is a debate going on right now in Parliament between the major parties um, and, and the minor and the crossbench on how to amend and fix this legislation. Mm. They could quite easily have done back in December. So it looks like that deal of, you know, we'll let us let us amend it later is happening now, which is an odd way to run legislation. Um, but it's also quite heartening to see that that debate around the ramifications of what this is going to do is still live. 
Yeah, parliamentarians yeah. are looking at what it's going to do and, and how it could be um, amended to be less dangerous. Our fundamental problem is that the legislation overall is incredibly damaging because what it does is it gives, at a very simple level, if you are a law enforcement agency and you are investigating someone and you can't access their encrypted communications, so they're using iMessage, they're using Telegram, uh, there is no way for you to break into there. This, pa- this bill, or this legislation, now law, gives you the power to go to that company and say, make a vulnerability, make a backdoor, make a hole that I can get into. And the company can be forced to do so. Mm. The employees can be forced to work on something, which is a very scary concept that a government can dictate the workforce of a private company to make things for them in their security agencies. Uh, you're not allowed to tell anyone that you're doing it for obvious reasons. Uh, the government will use that. What will then happen logically is that other people will find those vulnerabilities and they will find those holes and they will use them themselves. That's just a given mm. because it's like a rabbit hole. It can be used by a rabbit. It can be used by a weasel. It can be used by a ferret. I'm running out of animals to use my analogy. <laughs> but it's that idea that, you know, you make the hole, it's going to be used. It's going to destroy not just the security and safety of that, that technology, but also trust, people's trust in that. Yeah. If you find out that Telegram has been compromised and it's no longer secure and safe, you're not going to use it. Mm. Telegram will lose business. It will shut down. And so that's the kind of picture that we're trying to paint here is that there's no way around it. Um, in terms of some of the tweaking around that we're hopeful that we can push the parliament to understand now is there's a very simple one that would actually give people a lot more faith in the process, less in the outcome, which is that there is no judicial oversight over these powers. Right now, the minister can approve uh, an intervention. There is two ministers involved. You need the Home Affairs Office and the Communications Department. Um, but those are still two people. They're still yeah. ministers. And they've still got their own political ideologies and their associations, affiliations. If we inserted, you need a judge, I think a lot of people would have a lot more faith in the process because it's this process that we put in for most policing issues. Mm. We don't want police officers to have unwarranted powers and we don't even want police officers or security agencies to have unwarranted powers in association with the minister. We have a judicial system for a reason, for check sites and over- oversights and balance. So that would be a very quick fix that we could actually put a lot more faith in this process. Um, and then there's a whole range of other things that you could do to try and lessen the impact on the technology side of things. You know, so I think that's that's where we're at right now. At the moment, it is still law. It is still legislation. And as far as we know, it is actually being utilised already. As soon as that law went into effect, law agencies jumped on it and Mm. started using it. And that's a very worrying side of not just what laws we have in place, but how they got there. Have a rushed consultation to put it through uh, uh, a committee that has a usual bipartisanship to it doesn't allow for a lot of debate back and forth. And then for those uh, committee recommendations to be completely ignored and passed through with the support of major parties, we now have a very dangerous piece of legislation. Well, it is very dangerous. It's concerning, um, and particularly that there isn't that judicial oversight which um, has come up many times in terms of giving ministers such huge powers when they're not checked. Uh, We don't have a federal ICAC. There's not a huge amount of oversight over ministers except 
Senate estimates and a range of other things to try and get some transparency around these really highly secretive issues. Is there a threshold in terms of the seriousness of a case in order for a minister to deem it, you know, appropriate to to enable such a backdoor to be created? That's a good question. I mean, I think no is the is the simple answer. Um, it is down to their discretion as to whether or not they think there's um, a viable threat and what that actually means. Um, the other thing, I think the legislation on the whole is very vague in its mm. determinations of um, exactly what we're talking about. So one, for example, is this concept of a um, systemic weakness. Um, and we, we kind of pushed the point there and said, okay, they acknowledge that we don't want to create system-wide weaknesses and vulnerabilities. To define what that means is very difficult because... Any weakness can be a systematic weakness if you create it so. You can create a weakness... You can't create a weakness in one person's phone or one person's device, but you can create a weakness in a system that will then be exploited for the use of that one phone. By doing so, you've created a systemic weakness. So that's one little tiny sort of definition that we actually have seen Labor try to make some ground there uh, just last week where they actually pushed for what is the definition of systemic weakness Mm. and if you are going to cause one inadvertently or intentionally by using these powers, then we won't allow it. And that's actually quite good because that's the check and balance that we want. We want people to have to stop, recognise and realise that even if your intentions are good, even if you are targeting someone with, with probable cause you are going to create a weakness and you're going to create a weakness for the entire system. Therefore, don't do it. And it's that kind of definition I think we need to make sure is actually included in the checks and balances, just as much as you said of the thresholds around, well, at what point do you want to enact these powers? Because right now they're enacted whenever you want. Yes. You need a request from a law enforcement agency and you need a minister to say, yep, okay, good, off you go. Now, there are checks and balances up the chain of command within law enforcement. There always are. Mm. But there's this very weird reticence to involve the courts in the process. And, you know, the the, the triangle of, of how we run our society, you know, it should be the people and the politicians and the judges. And that back and forth means that right in the middle you have our agencies that we actually give huge powers to to keep us safe. But they know they've got three different wings of our society watching Now, we don't have the transparency, so the public can't see. Minister's got the power, judges aren't involved. Yes. That's an uneven triangle, and that's what we need to address in almost all of these powers, is to make sure that we have a balance between all three. And there is, um, there are these kind of notices that can be issued to uh, request that a telecommunications provider, and that's also a very vague, vaguely defined term, um, must create that kind of weakness um, or backdoor it appears that there isn't really a process to appeal a, a request and the, there's such a huge um, fine if you don't comply, $10 million. It seems like that is also pretty problematic given that most other things, even including whether a minister um, approves your citizenship or whether they revoke your citizenship, there's still usually an appeals process that can be engaged with. This one doesn't look like it has that. No, and I think it goes even further than no appeals processes. There's no ability to talk about it even before Mm. you get to an appeal process. So it's one of the things that was buried in this legislation that's incredibly worrying. And again, I don't actually think it was done 
done with any intent. Um, I think if you look at it very simply, they're looking at, okay, we want to compel organisations and companies to create our access and our assistance, if you take the title of the bill. Um, So if we ask them to do that, we can't tell anyone because we're creating a little hole. We don't Mm. want to tell anyone that we're looking at them. So we need them to be sworn to secrecy. If they don't want to do that, and we have a fight on our hands about whether or not we're compelling and forcing people to work on this stuff, we also don't want them to talk about that because even if someone found out we tried, that would be bad. And so you've got this little secrecy bubble happening more and more, even if people want to push back on it. You can't therefore have an appeals process because how would you actually appeal that publicly? How would you have that information out there? And so in many ways you kind of want the, you don't want, this is what they want, Uh, you want a spook agency that actually has the ability to go, oh, come on, make us a little hole over there. Mm. And then when someone says no for moral reasons or because I don't want to break my own software, I'm not going to do it, you go, okay, well, then don't tell anyone and we're going to find you and you can't tell anyone why we find you or what we asked you to do. And actually this is just going to be a big stick to make you do it anyway. Mm. And so now you've just given government the power to go to a private company and say, break your system for us, you know, break your economic model, make your system worse for everyone don't tell anyone you did it and then when it comes out that you did then all right fine it'll be leaked you know we'll deal with it then but hopefully it'll all just remain quiet and we can use it that's not how we should be treating our systems that's not how we should be treating our engineers our software engineers Um, and it's definitely not something that we want to see happen with any kind of government power you don't want to give government increased powers but no ability for anyone to see them use it that's not how a, a country should work Yes. Yeah, it raises so many issues, um, privacy issues, human rights issues, civil rights issues, the list goes on. And because, as you say, so many things are encrypted, it's also kind of concerning. As a layperson who's not particularly technical, um, Twitter is as far as I get for technicalities of anything Um, but it seems like if you start having backdoors or creating different mechanisms for a backdoor for some apps or technologies it might be easier to create them for other apps or technologies would you be it would it be easier to identify backdoors if you if there are more of them and you can start seeing you know how they've been created it's more about um systems these days are no longer isolated you know the days of uh getting your encarta 1996 cd-rom in the mail (laughs) good old days um and that that would be a whole bunch of software on a cd you would load it into your computer that would give you access to that version of the dictionary or the sorry the encyclopedia Mm. um that's long gone what we have now is linked systems permanently constantly linked systems that ping back and forth you know we all hit updates on apps or you know you have to update software or even update your playstation every now and then like there's constant feedback and even to the case that sometimes the software will sit on central computers and you might access certain parts of it so once you create a vulnerability somewhere it will filter Mm. like wildfire because that's how we've built our systems they're more efficient that way you no longer have to download 50 gigs of data you download you know 30 meg and then you access the other 50 gig on on the cloud that's a lot more that's a better way of actually distributing this stuff but it also means that instantly any kind of vulnerability will spread throughout the network yeah and that's one of the problems there in terms of it 
crossing over into different platforms, that's also a possibility because different platforms and different software providers will use uh, encryption protocols that might be shared by others. Hmm. So, again, we don't know exactly how this will happen. And it's one of the, the hard problems is that we can talk about the possibility of the danger that it creates. We can't point to examples because no one's ever been this stupid before, <laughs> basically. <laughs> don't you love how the Australian government's unprecedented in that way? Yeah, it's, it's a, quite a skill set that they've got at the moment. <laughs> Truly amazing. I think the other thing to note is also that the spread of this um, and the impact actually breaches into foreign affairs as well. Um, Australia is part of an alliance called the Five Eyes, mm. um, which is a, an agreement set in place decades ago between America, Canada, the UK, Australia and New Zealand. There are other alliances that get bigger, but those, that's the core. Um, and that was an agreement between our spy agencies to share information. So ASIO shares with GHCQ in the UK, shares with the NSA in uh, America and so on. Um, that has been happening for quite a long time, and it's not just when it relates to an international crime or something that crosses over borders. Um, the Snowden revelations actually revealed that the NSA was using huge troves of Australian data on Australian citizens because they don't care what Australians are doing, but they do care on the algorithms and the learning that can happen mm. from testing in that market. You can learn a lot more. The more people you put into your database, the more you can ascertain of the different... Um, uh, patterns that might exist. So that's already happening. If the Australian government's just given the power to break encryption over here, that will give those powers to the NSA, to GHCQ and to other agencies. We already share intel back and forth. Now, that should be scary for America, but what's interesting is that we actually heard that it's it's quite a worry on the foreign affairs side of things because it hits up against American law quite harshly. America have an enshrined Bill of Rights. They have a right to privacy. Put aside the fact that it's constantly being <laughs> violated. Um, they have uh, an ability to push back on it. We don't have a legislative backstop that we can push back. You know, we say mm. we have a right to privacy. Government will never say this, but they can, in theory, say, no, you don't. There is no rights. There's no. no rights framework in Australia. No, it's a, it's a piece of legislation, but it's not a, a human rights bill, a bill of rights. Yep, yeah, exactly. Um, America does have one. So now we've got a problem because we've got Australian government with these powers to break internet systems, global systems, that are illegal in America. And agencies that share intel and share software and share intelligence. So what does that mean? How is that going to work? Um, and then you go to the extreme in, in the European Union, they actually have a very good Bill of Rights and, in fact, a Bill of Digital Rights. Mm, um, yes. The GDPR, which was instituted just a couple of years ago, uh, and I can't remember what the acronym is actually for, the, the um, Global Digital Privacy Regime, I think. Um, and that is actually quite a good framework for protecting people's rights. What happens now when we share with European agencies or when... Australian citizens are using European servers and Australian law enforcement try and get ability to break those systems. This is part of the nuance of we live in a globalised world. Mm. Nothing is within national borders anymore, especially on the internet. So these are all the things that we actually want proper oversight. We want proper parliamentary processes, inquiries, and it really comes down to when you hear this evidence given again and again by human rights experts, by technology companies, by almost everyone was against it, and yet both major parties went, eh, and ignored it and passed it into law. That's a very worrying process to watch. Yeah, well, it's 
distressing really to see it unfolding before you. I'm speaking with Tim Singleton Norton who is the chair of Digital Rights Watch and we are talking about the Access and Assistance Bill which is now legislation unfortunately Um, and you talk about the fact that we're also interconnected globally. I mean it was pretty surprising to see domestic policy decisions being reported in the Washington Post as, you know, a huge issue for America. And um, they mention here that it would likely serve as a test case for the US uh, and other governments who are looking to pass similar encryption measures. Are there any other precedents set in terms of this type of legislation being enacted by other countries? The only examples that are even closer in despotic regimes in military dictatorships. So the Myanmar government has huge control over the way that social media is actually operated in the country or they have huge Mm. influence. Um, That's the only examples that we can see. And that's an incredibly worrying precedent. Um, And you're right, there was a huge... uh, It took a little while to sort of get that across, but we did start to see the international... Uh, attention that was necessary to see that this is an example of legislation but not even just as a test case where you can go okay we'll pick it up and deploy it in our own nation it will have ramifications regardless because of that intelligence sharing yes Um, and that that took a while for people to sort of realize that that was going to happen um i will say also we had some great support from some international organizations that work in the space Uh, access now which is basically an equivalent organization at a global level Mm. um we're very concerned about the australian example and what it would mean for the us where they're based but also in other countries that they work around the world and i think it was that jarring moment where you know we're on the phone to them and they said i went but you're in australia this shouldn't happen in Australia. Yeah. Like if we would expect it to pop up in an African or an Asian or a, or a South American country where the checks and balances of democracy aren't in place, but it's Australia. Mm. Like what's going on down there? <laughs> um, and I think that was quite worrying for us to see the international uh, backlash or the international yeah. kind of um, yeah opinion of what was happening. So as you say, regardless, it's now legislation. Um, and now it is a test case and we'll have to see what happens if we can change it and tweak it and make those amendments now that would be a, a first step but fundamentally the legislation's flawed it's mm. it's huge powers with no oversight very little understanding of the actual ramifications of it ignoring expert advice uh, and steaming ahead because the spectre of terrorism you know, it's like when we talk about immigration issues, as soon as you mention the idea of scary people coming here from overseas, you, the debate goes out the window, logic goes out the window, and it becomes yeah. ideological battle. Unfortunately, that's what's happened here. And that's what the government prosecuted quite well last year. Opposition blinked. Hopefully, we're, we're hopeful that they will actually continue to listen to the evidence now and push for those amendments to make it slightly less crap yeah well now that the government has been defeated on a piece of legislation and now also a call for a royal commission into the disability sector um do you think it's likely that we might see stronger like amendments made Uh, are there do you think the amendments that are being proposed go far enough to be able to rectify some of the issues we've been talking about or is it just kind of 
you can't fix something that's so broken. Oh uh, no, it's more that I can't predict anything to happen in this parliament. Yeah. It's a it's a <laughs> it's a disaster. <laughs> <laughs> um, in terms of what's being proposed at the moment with mm. amendments, some of them are quite good. Some of them actually do go, to, like I said, to the definition of systemic weakness, which is at the core. If you're going to create a weakness in a system, don't do it. That would be a huge step forward. Um, yeah. If we had someone who was willing, and we haven't seen this yet, but if we had someone who was willing to put forward judicial oversight as a mechanism to ensure that there is proper transparency, even if there's a there's a, a period in which those those decisions, those judges' decisions, are not actually made public, because we understand that there is an, a, a secrecy that needs to happen with some law enforcement, mm. but we want the the assurance that the proper checks and balances are being. Um, processed. If that means that, you know, you go to a judge and a judge says, yes, you can do it, and then there's a six-month period for you to do your investigation and then it becomes public record, it's fine because we can always look back on that. Right now it's a black hole. Yeah. And we don't know and we'll have no faith that those are actually being used properly, those powers are being used properly. So that would be a huge step forward as well. Um, I think there are bits about the legislation that needs to be amended, but even more, there's actually a bit more trust in the parliamentary process that needs to be repaired. Mm. Um, this, there's countless examples of these, you know, but there's, there's evidence and expert opinion being given to parliamentarians that is being ignored on a daily basis. This was holistic in the way that you could see it was being ignored. Yeah. And it's quite damaging in that we found ourselves, as a human rights organisation, we found ourselves not just aligned with but in an alliance with and talking on behalf of some of the people and some of the organisations and you companies. You normally criticise. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> There's a, a scary moment where we're actually standing alongside Twitter and Facebook and Google, people who, you know, organisations that constantly harvest individuals' privacy mm. and we were aligned. And more so than that, they actually said, no, no, we trust you, you speak for us. I'm like, okay. Surreal. That's a very weird situation and that yeah. should send a message to government that it's, and we tried to push this point, it is not just a bunch of people disagreeing with you. Mm. It is people from very different sides of the privacy debate coming together going, no, hang on you got it all wrong. And you got it all wrong from an economic frame or from a rights based frame or from a technical frame or from an ideological frame everything about this is wrong uh, we're willing to sit down with you and say, if you really need this power, we might be able to find a way. We don't know. We haven't had the time or the um, investment to really prosecute the idea of how could you give access, if at all. The answer might be you can't, but the answer might be that we actually find a way that doesn't involve breaking it for everybody. Yeah. I think that's what we need is we need a parliamentary debate that's actually willing to look at the answers uh, rather than just steamroll ahead and ignore all the evidence. Mm, and properly consult and listen to evidence, yep. take it into consideration because there's a reason why parliamentarians aren't tech experts as we saw with Tony Abbott <laughs> and the NBN. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but one of the things that is, to close out this um, discussion, that one of the arguments that's been made is that nine out of ten of ASIO's priority cases have an encryption element. I mean, that's just probably because, as we've said, nearly everything is encrypted in some way and mm. that terrorists and other criminals and organisations are using encrypted devices and modes in order to avoid being monitored. So it's kind of just what it's going to be like. Uh, in terms of one of the submissions, I saw that um, it said all communications among terrorists and organised crime groups are expected to be encrypted by 2020, if they're not already. So, I mean, given that this is now the mode... Um, how 
like is there is this really a must have or is this just a want like that we want to have this power and so give it to us and the government's gone oh yeah okay we want to give you whatever you ask for which is generally what they tend to do and what um scott morrison has bragged about doing with border security is we'll give you whatever you need um you know, is this really something that they absolutely have to have in in order to, I guess, access, you know, communications? I think it's about recognising that we're in a changing landscape. Um, I don't think it's just that 100% of terrorists and criminals' um, communication will be encrypted. 100% of all of our communication will be encrypted. Mm. That's where we're moving to. Now, that doesn't mean that you go backwards it doesn't mean that you break technological systems and give access and this is where there's this there's this funny idea of um the fight back and forth but we need it and you say yes all right fine if we acknowledge that you need it the only way to do it currently is to break it for everyone are you okay with that no we don't get an answer because mm. they don't want to have that answer. They want to say, no, 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 there's a way that we can do it for just us and not the bad guys. We're like, it's not possible. What we need is a way to reflect back on, okay, well, how can we do this? We And, and as I said, maybe the answer yeah. is that you can't. Mm. But this idea that it's, it's shady characters, you know, to, uh, going back and forth on, on signal and uh, organising bomb threats, that, that might be happening. That's true. But also I message my mum that she needs to come over and pick up my son for a play date on Signal. Yeah. Like these things yeah. happen at both ends of the spectrum. And if you break it for one, then you will break the security of, of how I talk to my mum. I'm not okay with that. Yes, exactly. <laughs> well, maybe we need more time for technology to develop to see if there are any other ways and still there may not be a solution. Yeah. But clearly the trade-off here is too great. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I think there's this... this and this misconception that there's someone standing in the way, that there's someone who says, no, 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 we don't want to tackle terrorism. We don't want to tackle the idea of how we mm, ensure that encrypted communication is safe. That's actually not what's happening. It's more about a pig-headedness around the facts and the evidence yeah. that if you push ahead with this, you're going to create these vulnerabilities for everybody. And that is not just about privacy and safety and security. It's also about the economics of whether you're going to destroy an entire industry because no one has any faith in it anymore. Mm. Well, I think if anyone is listening and wants to do something, they could get in touch with their local MP, lobby those who have the power to change, potentially more so Labor, given that they were against this at one point, uh, as well as the crossbench who clearly have a lot of power at the moment to change what happens in the lower house. So um, as as we've discussed, Penny Wong did say um, the bill, when it was a bill, as it is currently drafted, will make Australia less safe. That was her belief then. I'm sure it hasn't really changed. So, uh, yeah, please do make your voice heard. And I'm sure um, organisations like Digital Rights Watch would provide any of the information you need to be able to make your case. Yeah, absolutely. And you've got a website, don't you? Yes. You're obviously. What is the website in case anyone wants to know? It is digitalrightswatch.org.au. Excellent. Tim, it's been fantastic to speak with you and I really appreciate and I'm sure everyone listening appreciates your expertise. Thank you. I've been speaking with Tim Singleton Norton, who is the chair of Digital Rights Watch, among many other things, and clearly knows a lot about this issue. I hope that's been of use to you. It's definitely been of use to me. And uh, yeah, we'll obviously keep an eye on this whole issue. And if you're wanting to um, 
look up the bill slash legislation now, you can do so. As I said, it's the Telecommunications and Other Legislation Amendment Assistance and Access Bill Now Act uh, 2018. Um, And I'm sure they probably have the proposed amendment somewhere too that you can have a look at. You are tuned in to Uncommon Sense on 3 Triple R FM with Amy Mullins. And as I mentioned, uh, I have a really special and important guest on the show today. She is Marilyn Waring. Marilyn is a professor of public policy at uh, Auckland University of Technology. And um, she's done many things in her life, so many achievements that uh, it's hard to list them all, really. Um, And uh, obviously, she's certainly ruffled a lot of feathers, which means she's on the right track in what she's been doing. She's a political economist and she was uh, the youngest female MP in New Zealand's parliament uh, when she was elected in the 1970s. And um, she also chaired a very important committee which managed public expenditure, which of course, as we know, is where the power is. It's certainly with Treasury and the money. So uh, Marilyn has a huge amount of uh, expertise in economics as well as government and she wrote, as I said, a very important work um, about uh, roughly 30 to 31 years ago, and uh, it was called Counting for Nothing, uh, What Men Value and What Women Are Worth. And she's followed it up uh, with this shorter book, um, which is great to see how her thinking has evolved, and it's called Still Counting, Wellbeing, Women's Work and Policy Making. And uh, I'll leave it to Marilyn to explain the complexities of the topic Topic. Um, but at a, as a at a bigger, bigger picture level, um, we're looking we're looking at the limitations of GDP as a measure that is useful in any way to um, identify a nation's prosperity or well-being or success or happiness. Um, certainly, politicians spend their lives referring to it and being proud um, about it it growing and going up, um, but. Uh, as I'm, as Marilyn will explain, it's um, a very inaccurate measure and it's uh, also, when she looked into the figures, it's kind of surprising what was involved in um, coming up with the calculations. So I'm welcoming Marilyn now. Hi there, Marilyn. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Amy. Good morning. I'm delighted to be able to talk with you. And it's great to have you from New Zealand. Um, It's really lovely to get some international uh, viewpoints, and you've certainly looked at this issue from an international perspective, though in your new book you are drawing on some really interesting examples um, from Nova Scotia, from Australia, from New Zealand. Um, But first for our uh, listeners, in terms of... The, your first book, um, which you know is a, a fascinating read and still so relevant today, um, how did you? How did it come about? Because as I've said, your background uh, was in politics as a parliamentarian, and you've done and engaged in so many issues as a parliamentarian in the nuclear energy and um, the nuclear issue more broadly for the environment, uh, and also this issue of unpaid work and particularly women's caring roles that um, are not accounted for. Well, when I was in the parliament. One of the things that you learn very quickly is that 
when the government decides that it will redistribute revenue, um, and in my days there were loads of uh, loans and other forms of subsidies for business, that only that group uh, or that part of the nation's economy that appear to be producers are the ones avail uh, uh, that you can see visibly to redistribute those resources. And if you're not a producer, you're generally thought of, if you're a problem, as welfare. And the rules that set this up were written in 1953, and then they were imposed on the whole world. And crucially in the rules is something called the boundary of production. Fine if you're on the right side of the boundary of production. That is, that there's some kind of market exchange in your work. But quite specifically, always left out, has been all unpaid work. So that's overwhelmingly all unpaid household work, unpaid caring work, our community and voluntary work that we do unpaid, um, what's called subsistence production, so all of you who are currently harvesting, if you've got enough water, um, from your city gardens or even from your farm uh, gardens, that subsistence production doesn't count either. And across the world, that's the biggest amount of work that is done. And it's overwhelmingly done by women. So from 1953 onwards, we had a particular and truly significant bias built into our GDP figures. And a really simple way of remembering how this works um, is that if a man marries the housekeeper he's been paying to do that work and she becomes his wife, when she was the paid housekeeper it was work and now she is the wife and he doesn't pay her, it is not work. Although exactly the same services, production, etc. are going on. And so this biases the evidence that you have in front of you if you're trying to make government policy. You can think in Australia a really important and immediate effect of this is the fact that women frequently don't have the income or certainly have breaks from income to invest in superannuation schemes. So overwhelmingly in Australia, those who are in receipt of the pension and um, you know all the other issues that come with that, having to go and ask every time you want a major dental appointment or something. Um, so you start to, to uh, anchor that disparity right over people's lives. Um, and it's, you know, this is not a healthy way to make good policy, 
to leave all of that work out. My generation, I'm in my 60s now, um, we are frequently looking after older parents. And they don't actually have to be living in our homes for us to have to spend hours a week to ensure that they're safe and cared for. Um, and many, many of my women colleagues my age in academia are no longer um, being able to supervise as many students uh, to write the uh, peer-reviewed articles that people expect of them, they're too busy in their unpaid work now. So in the UK, business has noticed this affecting them to such a large extent, and particularly it's their senior women who simply cannot be replaced, who finally have, have too much caring responsibility. And so business enterprises themselves have got together in the UK to look at government because they can see the effect it has on them. But in the meantime, the majority of work on the planet just doesn't get counted. Yeah, well, it, it's clearly a huge proportion of the activity that happens in any country. And um, there were a range of time use surveys which seemed to illuminate the issue even more and to highlight um, just how large a sector, as you call them, this um, work is. And in some cases, it's the largest sector in a nation. Um, could you share with us some of that information about um, just what kind of proportion this work is? Well, Australia's made some truly significant uh, breakthroughs in research in this area. Uh, I can go back to um, some work done by Duncan Ironmonger and Evelyn Sonius at the University of Melbourne. And Duncan uh, used traditional input-output approaches that we use uh, to assess the value of all unpaid work in Australia compared with what was registered in the GDP. Uh, and he, of course, uh, looked at use of assets in the home and intermediate consumption, etc. Um, now, this is in the 1990s, but what he was able to demonstrate was that the household sector was at the time three times the value of all mining and mineral extraction and ten times the value of all manufacturing. Now, in the 25 or more years since then, we, of course, have had some quite major structural changes. But the most recent data that I could get for Australia, 2016, was that childcare, now I'm not talking about paid childcare, I'm talking about unpaid childcare, in and of itself was the single largest economic sector in the Australian economy. And the second largest sector was all the rest of the unpaid work, 
And coming in third was the top market sector, which these days appears to be um, a lot of insurance, intellectual property, uh, a lot of e-based um, services and production. And even those figures leave out the work that Julie Smith has been doing in Canberra. And Julie is probably the leading world uh, researcher on the value of lactation. Uh, so even these unpaid figures that are in my book, whether they're from Canada or Nova Scotia or New Zealand or Australia, are still leaving out the most important uh, moment in the health of the first six months of a child uh, through lactation. And as Julie says, it has all kinds of benefits, you know. There's, there isn't any pollution. Um, uh, the, the, it, it's, it's such a preventative. It assists the later health and education of the child. And I have no idea how the figures would look if we added the lactation uh, value into that as well. And at, also in Melbourne, uh, as I understand it, there's some new work being done. Um, Mike Salvaris has been in the area for a long time. And I think he's working with the University of Melbourne uh, on looking at well-being indicators. And, you know, so we've got ourselves to a point internationally where it is now recognised that GDP um, is a, a, a very distorted comparator. You have to be very, very careful how you use GDP, but we know that it does not give messages to government about where investments should go. GDP, for example, um, really it counts um, the underground economy in Australia, so all drug trafficking uh, is counted in the GDP because money is exchanged in the system. Uh, obviously, um, across the world, the particular trades, either in illegal armaments or trades in people, you know, for slavery or for sexual servitude. Because money is exchanged and because the Reserve Bank or the Central Bank can count the amount of money that is exchanged and compare it with what is reported as legitimately exchanged, it can see how much illegal enterprises add to the GDP. Uh, the destruction of the environment for years and years, you know, uh, if, if you think of the Amazon, which so many of us depend on, as the lungs for the planet, well, the dear Amazon is being the lungs for the planet, it's not producing anything at all, according to the GDP. It only produces when it's logged and destroyed. And it doesn't actually matter whether the logging is legal or illegal. 
it still gets counted. So we've reached a situation where many, many international commentators are, you know, finally tugging at their forelock and saying, oh, mea culpa, uh, yes, GDP uh, leaves a lot to be desired. But the, the impetus for me to write Still Counting was because what some of the, the commentators have come up with um, really is the Empress New Clothes. They're pretending we have something new, but nothing about the values at the basis of it all have changed. So that's the position we're all, you know, a lot of countries are in now, trying to think, okay, so we need an alternative. What's it going to be? Who's going to pay for it? How are we going to build it? And that's what Still Counting was about. And it's so uh, helpful in that, um, in terms of analysing, I guess, some of the propositions that have been put forward and their um, their real issues and biases, inbuilt biases that are in these um, different ways of approaching um, well-being, particularly the OECD's um, suggestion. And uh, I was really fascinated by um, that chapter, and of course, as many other points that are made. Uh, but in terms of the the suggested um, replacements, or at least, I mean, GDP seems like it's not going to go away, but it has a very narrow usage. Um, and when we're looking... It's okay. It's kind of just, we just need to keep it in its corner. Yeah. <laughs> and not use it for, um, yeah, the measure of all success. That's right. Yeah. Um, so I, I certainly noticed that um, New Zealand and the your new, semi-new Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern has put a lot of emphasis on well-being as a, an important thing to measure in New Zealand and she was making a big deal out of it at the Davos very recently um, and uh, and you talk about the OECD and their very Eurocentric um, way of approaching well-being. Could you share a bit about um, that, that approach and the New Zealand approach and I guess are there, you know, really important limitations to that particular approach? I found the OECD approach to be, well, in the first place, terribly Eurocentric. If you think of New Zealand and Australia, there are a whole lot of things. First of all, if you're an isolated, huge continent without contiguous geographical feature boundaries with anybody, you don't share air, you don't share rivers, etc. Um, uh, and New Zealand, of course, again, that whole sense of isolation without that, that immediately changes. You know, if you've got a limited amount of investment to put into data gathering, uh, staying with air is a really good, obvious example. If I was a policymaker in Australia and somebody gave me the national data for air quality, I'd look at them like they were a clan. Just what on earth value is that to me in a continent the size of Australia? Sometimes the air quality data we want is just for particular parts of a city, not even particular parts of a state. And, and in Europe, to, to measure national air quality is a completely different 
kind of concept than doing it in Australia or New Zealand. In our places, that's really stupid. Eurocentrism, of course, for New Zealanders, also leaves out our tangata whenua, our Māori, uh, with whom we have a Tariti partnership and from whom we have a lot to learn in terms of environmental sustainability, for example. And the Eurocentric model just does not fit here. And I would suggest in Australia you would have similar difficulties uh, with the indigenous respect that more and more is being noted, certainly in events I come to, um, if not fully understood. And so that's another issue. Uh, another um, really good example, I think, uh, is the way in that, that Europe, because of the European community, we can see all of this in Brexit at the moment, very much share similar data sets for everything they measure. And GDP in the community is very, very important because it forms the basis of the annual uh, contributions that you're expected to make to the community. So there's a very particular way and a very particular reason for measuring in Europe that we do not share, either Australia or New Zealand. And I can go on. Um, if, if we just think in terms of, you know, the things that happen really quickly that no system ever thought of, uh, and we think about Airbnb or we think of Uber, all of a sudden people's household assets, which weren't worth anything when they were only being used to assist with unpaid work, all of a sudden, in Airbnb, household assets become deductible because they're part of running a business. So this immediately becomes a tax advantage uh, for the people who are wealthy enough to run Airbnb or to have a car to run an Uber. Uh, and it's a kind of a, it, it's, it's been an underground creeping tax advantage because nobody addressed it. Uh, and yeah, Amy, there's just, there's so many pieces of this puzzle. Mm. Um, and again, you know, Clive Hamilton and Richard Dennis, again, Australians, they've been terrific commentators on this for a lot of years. And I'm in fact joining Richard Dennis and Anne Mann at the Bendigo Book Festival this year in August. Uh, so we can That's try fantastic. and solve some of these issues. Yes, well, you uh, mentioned Richard and Anne and actually Clive, and I've had all of them on the show. Um, oh, right. Yeah, including Anne, who's mentioned your work a number of times. So, um, yeah, she's certainly a great advocate for this in Australia. Um, and obviously Richard, you know, with his no-nonsense approach to everything. Yes, and, and I think, you know, Anne is like a lot of people, um, when you have been a carer, um, you, you deeply, deeply understand this. Uh, 
uh, and um, it's it's the invisibility and the expectation um, that you're available 24-7 to do this work um, that also has such a resonance um, with my writing. Mm. Well, you certainly, uh, I know, have been a carer and uh, of your parents, and so that's certainly um, a really important point to make as well. And you mentioned in this um, this piece, uh, this book, that really, in terms of the lived experience of the economists who are coming up with these ideas, a lot of them, you know, want their work to be valued and wonder, you know, why is my work not included or um, counted? And uh, and you highlight such a great point, which is that uh, economics is a social science. Uh, it was actually in an arts degree, and uh, in some cases it still is. In um, At Oxford, it's part of the PPE, the politics, philosophy and economics, but it's now kind of cordoned off in Australia and perhaps in New Zealand as, um, as a part of a business or commerce degree uh, and not really a, a core component of um, arts and the humanities or social sciences. Uh, but you, by raising that, you also highlight the fact that it does involve value judgments and, uh, and a lot of kind of uh, bias and interpretation. Yes, um, and of course, in still counting, I, ha- I I used quite a lot of those what I call the wheelbarrow academic words, the the ology words, but I try to really deconstruct them mm. because this is so important. Um, economics in. You see, it doesn't matter whether you're from the left or the right in economics. You all left out what we did. <laughs> you know, it's like I remember Balarabzuk saying to me once about a friend of hers who said, "I've been married to a Republican, a Democrat, and a communist, and none of them knew how to take out the garbage." <laughs> um, and, and you know, from the left or right, we just really it, it, nobody's really moved into women's unpaid work, you start, you get very, very different values in Indigenous economics, Um, whether that's First Nations people in North America or the Sami people uh, up on the Arctic Circle or our own Māori. Um, Indigenous economics has very different value bases. Um, and especially around uh, sustainable environmental standards. Um, one of the stories I always love telling is about the work in Nunavut um, done by Mark Nielski, where um, wealth is seen as the number of people who share a dog team, not the number of people who have their own dog team. Um, so really different value bases go on here. But since 1953, economics has just been really turgidly stuck. And it hasn't gone back and really investigated the values that underlie the answers to, to so many of its questions. And, you know, truly when I... Um, for example, would ask, so this, here's a long word, epistemology. Okay, so what does it mean? It means how do we know what we know? It's really simple. That's what it means. Well, it's perfectly obvious that men and women have different epistemology. 
expertise <laughs> that mm. they bring to the table to discuss economics. But there's hard, if you're off in the business faculty, there's hardly ever a woman around the table. And when they do tend to be there, if they want to become professors, then they have to do what the boys do. You know, they have to play in the same sandpit use the same theory otherwise they're going to be sort of isolated out on a limb somewhere and not taken terribly seriously um, so the, the, the conceptual uh, leap that needs to be made here and the change in value judgments that need to be made here and this is because our Prime Minister has said she wants to move with a wellbeing budget. This is kind of the moment. I, I was in the middle of another book, but I actually had to stop and do still counting really quickly. Because it's, you know, over 60 years we've been stuck with this pathological value system that says killing people is great for growth, you know, and killing the environment is great for growth too. Uh, and so if, if a government says, actually, we're going to move in a different direction, this is likely to be the only chance we'll get for another 60 years because whatever they put in place, you know, we'll never be able to shake that straitjacket off again in my lifetime. So that's why I got, you know, pretty exercised about it. Mm. Um, and, and hopefully it will play into the debate in Australia um, and I noticed that, and I, I don't know if the government has done this in Australia, but I did notice that the Labour opposition as a policy platform for this election has said that they intend to reintroduce nationwide time use surveys. And this is a fundamental piece of data that we need for the new regime. Um, so I was delighted to read that and to see that commitment. Mm. Yes, that is really great uh, to highlight. And uh, we certainly used to have it for some period and it, it was halted. Yes. Yeah. Yes. By yeah. the Abbott, Abbott government. Australia. Mm. Yes. Um, I just want to finish this discussion, which unfortunately we're going to have to close out, but um, I wanted to just highlight the position that you had and then that you've kind of evolved your position in terms of the way that unpaid caring and household work is measured because um, there is quite a blunt way of doing it which is to kind of figure out what the market replacement would be or the market cost is of that that work but you've kind of evolved your position and um, I'd really like to just quickly hear what how you've come to a different position. Yes Amy when I was a member of parliament and I wanted to create visibility for um, rivers, forests, you know, uh, or unpaid work. I was in the trap. I was co-opted. So the easiest way to provide visibility was usually to find some estimate of the market value and to throw that into the equation. And uh, um, from inside the Beltway... Uh, that was definitely what I thought um, had to be the solution. The longer that I've been out of Parliament and the more time I've had to reflect and to think, um, I've grown completely opposed to that. 
first of all, because if we do use market values, then we actually we abstract um, from the from the true characteristics. So. Uh, I use the wonderful Tasmanian forests that I've been very, very worried about in your fires um, as a demonstration of the range of biodiversity and the lunacy of thinking that you can actually give all parts and characteristics uh, of that biodiversity um, a dollar value. I, when I started to think more about unpaid work and I thought about what the GDP measures, you know, obviously militarism is one of the biggest things it measures and it's huge in a number of countries, GDP. And then the fact that it measures all the illegal activities as long as it can sort of measure the cash in circulation. And I thought to myself, Marilyn, this is... This is a very pathological system. It values things for us. Uh, and I do not want to see the work that women do, whether it's uh, work in their home, whether it's giving birth, whether it's lactating, um, whether it's all the, the caring of older people or the growing of healthy veggies in the backyard or whatever it is. I now have moral and ethical difficulties. I could not morally or ethically argue on the same basis as I did 30 years ago to include it for the sake of visibility. And humankind has enough brain power to juggle different sets of data and to come to conclusions. So we do not need everything to be registered as a dollar. We could take time use data measured in hours and minutes. We can take GDP measured in dollars. We can take environmental characteristics measured in all the different range of ways that they need to be measured scientifically and, again, not stick any dollar value on them or uh, have some abstraction. And rely on people in our policy processes and in advocacy um, to be clever enough to deal across that range of data. And in fact, it's exactly what happens in a cabinet when they're arguing. That's exactly what happens. They step back from the abstraction and start telling stories. So um, I'm, I'm hopeful in the next two or three years um, as people watch what New Zealand is doing, and I'm sure there'll be crit critics as well, and uh, they've targeted a, a revision in 2021, um, that we all need to be thinking about this and um, thinking intergenerationally. Uh, whatever decisions we make now about this data set will be what governs the next 50 years. And we have to be far more responsible than we have been for the last 50. Marilyn, I couldn't agree more. And your work is such an important part of that. And I just commend you for everything you do. And obviously the great um, determination and grit you must need to continually push up against an orthodoxy which is determined to stay 
the, the way it is. Uh, so thank you so much for everything um, you've shared with us today and I hope uh, people can read Still Counting and your first work because uh, we just just barely scratched the surface. So um, I really appreciate your time today. Well, thank you very much, Amy, and lovely to talk to you. So lovely to speak with you. Thank you, Marilyn. I've been speaking with Professor Marilyn Waring, who is a Professor of Public Policy at Auckland University of Technology. She was the youngest female New Zealand MP in the 1970s. She is an activist on so many fronts, but she's also a political economist. So she knows exactly what she's talking about and debunks so many uh, economic myths. So I really do commend you to read Still Counting, Wellbeing, Women's Work and Policy Making, because it is fascinating to read and it is not at all dry and it is very very accessible Uh, so yes highly recommend that you've been listening to the uncommon sense podcast uncommon sense is a show broadcast on three triple r fm in melbourne every tuesday between 9 a.m and noon thanks for joining me